Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. I will refer to a few verses in Genesis 10 for context, and I have those passages for you on the insert so you can see there. Genesis 10, as you hopefully remember, contains the the table of the nations that dispersed after the flood. It spans the time of Noah to the time of Abraham. It really is inclusive and has the three sons of Noah and all their progeny. Chapter 11 then goes back into that timeline a bit and explains how some of the division occurred. It focuses on a particular individual and some cities that he founded, and then uh, chapter 11 explains the specifics of that instance. That's what we're looking at today. Chapter 11 also, before us, illustrates how the sinful depravity of humankind it plays a recurring role in the development of societies and nations. See this on the wide level, but we know it's true of ourselves too when we read this episode. Chapter 11 challenges every individual with the question of personal motives, purposes, and goals. It's that practical, yet it's also far-reaching in that this episode is filling in the story of God's development of the seed to come who will be the Messiah. So it plays an important role in the big picture of Scripture's message of salvation through Christ, and it also has a very particular personal application we will all gather very readily. So before reading the first nine verses of chapter 11, let's start with chapter 10, the verses I have there listed, 8 through 10, and then we'll go into the story or the episode, the chronicling of Babel and the city and the tower. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, starting in Genesis 10, verse 8. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achid, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Now Genesis chapter 11, the first nine verses. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and vitamin for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Please bow together with me as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we approach these verses with reverence and awe. This is your word, and the record contained therein tells the truth. It gives us an important 
part of history, along with lessons that are universal and certainly timeless. By the illumination that your Holy Spirit gives, please make plain to us your truth and how we should live by it. pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The story of Babel starts in Genesis 10 and then plays out more so in Genesis 11. It's part of the continuing explanation of the establishment of the nations that will set the stage for the coming of Israel and then from Israel, the Messiah, the promised seed, the long forecasted seed of the woman, the the backdrop of the whole of the Old Testament and what's fulfilled in the New Testament. The Chronicle of Babel before us It illustrates a recurring pattern. We've seen this pattern before in mankind. In fact, what brought about the flood looks a lot like this. This pattern of sinful humanity. Sinful humanity as a whole, but then also individually, every one of us can relate with what we see here unfolding. We always keep in mind the greater redemptive contribution that every episode in the Old Testament makes, and at the same time, we can see some very clear in apparent lessons for us as a people and individuals to gather. Here's a statement to consider as we look at this episode. Whatever you are building, whatever you're constructing, whatever you're establishing, it is a memorial, a signpost to something or someone. Whatever you are establishing in your life, it makes a statement about who and what is important to you. Maybe you're building a future for yourself. Perhaps you are in the midst of building a career. You might be building a portfolio or a resume. You could be earning certification or accumulating some kind of professional credentialing. You're building a bank account. You're building savings. You're accumulating things and stuff, houses and cars and property. You're building a family legacy, perhaps. You're building a reputation. Whatever you are striving to build will become a memorial to something or someone. Whatever you're establishing, constructing, erecting, it will tell a story of priorities and value. Whatever you are assembling or raising in your life will give a message of what is important to you. The record of Babel that we have before us gives us an explanation for the division of the nations and the cultures of earth. The record of Babel and its most famous construction project also provides a cautionary, timeless tale for all nations and peoples. Here we have a people rising up in opposition to God and his revealed will for them. Rising up in opposition to God and his rule and his reign, only to come down again by his discipline. Let's approach the passage with a a simple clarity. First, let's look at the passage and be introduced to the leader and the people, the people and their leader, we might say. Then we'll go to chapter 11 on the whole, and we'll see the people and their mindset or their pride, their view of life. Finally, we'll see the Lord and his discipline. All of this will provide for us timeless truth for sure, timeless explanation as well. Let's look first at the verses in chapter 10 that introduce us to the leader and the people. All of chapter 10 is a big picture of the accounting of the people that lived on earth after the time of Noah's flood. It recounts the spread of humanity from the ark in the years after the flood waters receded. So we come to focus 
in chapter 10 on several verses devoted to one individual in many city-states that he began. It stands out from the rest of chapter 10. Most of it is a, a rapid litany with three different divisions under the three sons of Noah. But all of a sudden we have this focus on this one individual whose name is Nimrod and all these cities that he helped to found. I only mention a few of them in these verses. Verse 8 says, Cush father Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. This really stands out from chapter 10. Because no other personal comments are made like this about anyone else, even though there's dozens of people in dozens of places. Verse 10 says, the beginning of his kingdom. Just the start of his kingdom is Babel. Then there's Erech, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar, the, the Euphrates River Valley or thereabouts. So you have a person who has no trouble gaining huge followings to build city-states, and there are more mentioned in the verses that follow. So this is a prominent individual. We know something about the people. The people are buying into whatever he's selling, whatever he's aspiring towards, whatever he's painting a picture about. They like it, and they go with him. And many cities are founded underneath this man's leadership. So we know something of the people they're willing to follow him. Let's discover a bit about the person, the leader, that'll give us more of a sense of what they're thinking, what their priorities are, what they're doing. Well, when we look at this man, Cush, Father Nimrod, that's from the, the line of Ham. It says he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, labeling him a mighty man might come back to your thinking about something we read earlier before the flood. This Descriptors only used one other time up to this point, and here three times mighty is attached to Nimrod, a mighty man and a mighty hunter. It was used pre-flood in Genesis 6. In fact, the very episode that prompted God to send the flood comes in this context. Listen to what it says in Genesis 6:4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. This offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men produced these mighty men, these men of renown. Here we see in the passage before us, in verse 9 of chapter 10, that Nimrod was a mighty man now in the world. And he was new in this new renewed world, new of his kind. He was a mighty hunter. These terms echo the time of evil before the flood, the evil rebellion. So Nimrod is des described in a similar fashion. A mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, it's interesting this statement should not be confused to make him out to be you know, a great wild game hunter, a great hunter of animals. There's something more being implied here. All the scholars resoundly say that this is the case. The context is depicting something about his aggressiveness, about his crusading spirit towards people around him. And there's no wonder that he's establishing multiple different cities. People are coming and following him. Maybe he's taking over other cities, claiming them for himself. It was Matthew Henry who made this observation. He was a mighty hunter, that is, he was a violent invader of his neighbor's rights and properties, and a persecutor of innocent men, carrying all before him, and endeavoring to make all his own by, take all his own by force and by violence. 
He was so well known for his spirit of aggression and his crusading spirit that there was a colloquial saying about people like him that were this kind of aggressive. It says in verse 9, Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. We have yet another indication about this man's character, his actions, the way he operated. It says he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now we shouldn't understand this to mean before the Lord as in for the purpose of the will of the Lord. That's not what it means. It's more in context, practically speaking, he viewed himself as before the Lord or could be in the Lord's presence with no worry of any judgment on him. Who could judge him? Some translations say he was a mighty hunter in the Lord's sight. He viewed himself in a high and lofty way and he carried himself that way and people followed him. No shortage of people following him, brazen about his prowess. His name itself is believed to mean we will, we will revolt, a revolution. That's, he's a revolutionary. This is a man who had grown powerful and he was bent on building kingdoms for himself and we see it laid out in Genesis 10 and then the details happen in chapter 11. For the most part, based on the listing of the kingdoms that are credited to him, he was successful on earth in what he did. He prospered in that sense, building a name for himself, building a legacy for himself. He was creating a dynasty in his name, and he established various cities, various kingdoms. Now, let's see something of the people and their pride. We know about the leader. We know there are people who will follow this leader. They are buying his vision. They are signing on to his, his conquests. They want to be part of this. We can assume establishing societies and civilizations. And now we come to chapter 11 in the story. The account unfolds. The people and their pride now developing. We can see it before us. What the people of Babel endeavor to do reveals the pride. Verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now language and the same words are two different descriptions. One has to do with the language we speak, our vernacular. The other one has to do with with an agreement on the things we're talking about. At this point, everyone was speaking the same vernacular, the same language from Noah. Could understand each other. But in this case now, we see that there is a similarity in philosophy too that is developed. The same words, that's what this means. Uh, two weeks ago, I was at a conference in Mississippi. I haven't spent much time in Mississippi, as you probably can imagine. If you've seen my cousin Vinny, that's what it's like when I go to Mississippi. These Mississippi guys were sitting at a lunch table and they were, all, they were talking about cotton farming. Now, I've been in Kansas long enough to know about bean farming, corn farming, milo farming, raising cattle. I've heard it and I've seen it and I appreciate it and can tell you a few things about it. I can talk with people about that, but not about cotton farming. And for some 20 minutes, they were carrying on about various aspects of cotton farming and how it affected people in their church and the, the area around and the economy and so forth. At some point, the discussion switched to hunting. And I said, that's my language you're speaking now. That's what is meant here. They're speaking the same words. They're speaking the same language vernacularly, but also they were on the same philosophy. Now, what's that philosophy? Well, that's what starts to unfold. And you can see, there's nothing wrong with being united and speaking the same language unless you have a leader like Nimrod who is able to gather people to an unrighteous cause. Then you could see how things would unravel rather quickly. Verse 2. Seems subtle, but pay close attention and remember back to what we've been studying 
in the early parts of Genesis? What is God's will for mankind at this stage of creation? It says in verse 2 what they did. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now remember that God's command early in creation to mankind was to be fruitful, to spread out and to multiply, to exercise dominion over the face of the earth, to be his representatives on all places. Humankind was supposed to spread out and make this, be stewards of God. Early in Genesis chapter 1, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now after the flood, this was still the creation mandate that God gave to, to go and be fruitful. So he tells Noah the same thing in chapter 8 of Genesis. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The same mandate to go out, spread out, be God's representatives everywhere. God commanded humankind to rekindle their God-ordained purpose to fill the earth and be God's vice regents over the globe. God is the creator in Genesis, and human beings are to subdue the earth for God's namesake, for his glory, for his good. God is the builder, and humankind is a memorial to God's creatorship. But what do we have happen here? And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, their next move wasn't to seek God's will for what they should build. Verse 3, and they said to one another. They didn't stop and say, what does the Lord of the universe want? They said to one another. They're only looking to themselves for their will, for what they want to do. They said to one another, and this is, the same la- this is them speaking the same words now. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. That's not a little thing. In the Euphrates River Valley, there weren't the materials that you needed for building these kinds of structures. But that was no stop to them in their will. They would figure it out. They would make the stuff they needed at whatever cost it would take, human and otherwise. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. We don't need the normal stuff. We'll make it ourselves. We are our own makers. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. We're going to build a vast city and we're going to build a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. When people look at this establishment, they'll see we made it with our own hands. And we could go as far as the gods too if we want. There's a divinity about who we are is what they're expressing by what they're doing. And let us make a name for ourselves and don't miss this rebellious tone in verse 4 lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, lest we fulfill the will of God that we've heard down through Noah, lest he spread us out, let's do this fortification so that cannot happen. We'll build a city and a tower in honor of ourselves. The enterprise that we're reading of here, I hope it strikes you like it did me the first time I read it. This is like the pre-flood world. This is the way they, all their thoughts were evil all the time been away from God. Now we see it reviving itself after. A revival of the pre-flood era is what we have here. A return to a kind of pre-flood rebellion. We have a purposeful ignoring of the revelation of the true and living God that had come through Noah. There were not that many generations to where there would have been people alive 
for the sons of Noah personally. It was a proposed rebellion. Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament commentator, said that they sought to glorify and fortify themselves. That's what they were doing in building a city in a tower. Now, let's look at the project a little more closely to fully appreciate the people and the pride that they were possessing. Verse 4, and they said, come, let us build ourselves. You see it, this oozing from the passage. It's about them, a memorial to them. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Repeat it again lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to build a city no matter what cost. They are the makers, made by us and made for us. And then we'll make a tower with its top in the heavens, the centerpiece of our civilization. This would be a structure that had a religious worship significance. It was an edifice to worship, but it was ultimately an edifice to the worship of themselves. Before any God could reach us, we could go up to them. We don't need their help to bring us up. We'll go up because we can do this. If we could occupy the heavens, they may have thought, we could prove that we're heavenly beings ourselves. The tower makes a statement about their magnificence. Maybe, maybe it was made as a statement against the God of Noah, saying if you try to send a flood again, we'll survive that too. The city in Tower of Babel was a revolt against God. It was a human effort to appear divine. It was an idolization of mankind. The building of Babel and the tower came from a spirit of absolute human autonomy. That's what we can see. Hardly a more dramatic opposition could be imagined. You know, when we built this building, um, there was a cornerstone placed, and you see it when you walk in, and it says Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor will do so in vain. It's an attempt even in our fallenness through redemption to say it's got to be all for God's glory. But if there's a cornerstone for the Tower of Babel, it would have said, made by man in honor of man. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Just metaphorically stop for a moment and think to yourself, what are you building? What are you establishing? Because it will depict something that is important to you. I'm always amazed when I walk through the cemetery and see people think that the lasting legacy they want is a K-State logo or a Chiefs logo, no, even worse. <laughs> the things that we want people to remember us by. Well, there's things you can give for them to remember you by, and there's all the rest that they will remember you by, and it's based on what you've been building, right? What you're building right now. They forget we forget at times what Spurgeon said so carefully, they that go up in their own estimation must come down again by his discipline. We see that unfold here. Look at verse 5 down to verse 9, the, the last part of this episode. We see the Lord and his discipline. Let's walk through this carefully because it is telling, it's astounding what is described here. And the Lord came down, verse 5, to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Humanity should really be more humble about our place in the universe. It's true. Mankind has most assuredly witnessed great advancements in our lifetime and in recent years. 
but we are so very insignificant on a universal scale. You know, all the recent attention to Elon Musk has served to bring back into view what is usually considered by most people the greatest achievement of mankind. It's debatable, but usually the thing that people point out is that we put a man on the moon. That's kind of what Musk is about. He wants to return humanity to space travel. You hear people say when something simple doesn't work right, we could put a man on the moon, but we cannot get the, the traffic lights at the corner of 151st and Metcalf to work to be timed right. You know what I'm talking about? We could do this, we could do that. We put a man on the moon. So it's, it's commonly considered this great thing that we have done that really shows you how great mankind is. A man on the moon, the great accomplishment of mankind. Well, the last time a man on the, was on the moon, I was six months old. Fifty years ago is the last time we had a man on the moon for our greatest accomplishment. No one since. Musk talks about Mars as the next goal. Mars. We could be decades away from that. Well, maybe not that far away of getting someone there, but getting them back, that's a whole other thing. That's a long way off, and that's just Mars. Now, I know you know the scope of the universe. You know the distances between things. And there are some amazing things put out into space so we could see pictures. Pictures of how little we are, how insignificant we are as it relates to the universe. And here in the passage before us, we have what might have been the greatest architectural achievement in human history to that point. A great tower extending into the sky at Babel. A monument of human greatness. A structure for the whole earth to look upon and marvel and recount the greatness of mankind. A tower that would intrude into the heavenly places and make a statement about the preeminence of humanity. And it says in verse 5 in description of God's analysis, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord had to come down to see this great edifice. The Lord had to come down to see what the children were up to. I'm reminded of a mother who's working at home, accomplishing tasks around the home and has two young children. And she puts them in a nursery and gives them some Legos to play with. An hour later, she checks back to see what they did. That's God checking on the tower to see what the children of man had done. Very careful language by Moses. He had to come down to see what the children of man were doing. These great, magnificent ones. What Nimrod and the Babel builders thought was so impressive, God couldn't even see from heaven, is the implication. The tower the Babel builders thought would, would intimidate the gods or God and allow them to go up to him and get in his face, that tower was so small, so miniature, so insignificant, so tiny, so peewee, that the true and living God of heaven and earth had to stoop down to squint to see what they had done. And none of us have done something that great. Derek Kidner wisely puts it this way, the Babel Tower project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement, very much as modern man glories in his space projects. At the same time, while planning to build it, they are revealing their insecurities as they crowd together in the city to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. 
observing their unity in rebellion, God moves to thwart their goals and advance his purposes. His purposes were, was always to spread people around the globe, setting the stage. Eventually Israel would come, the Messiah would come, and he has a, a long-term goal to bring humanity back under Christ. And that's unfolding. It even has unfolded to some degree already in the person of Christ coming. But in this instance, right now, observing this, he very simply, so simply, is able to thwart the whole enterprise of man. In language reminiscent from before the flood, verse 6 of our passage. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have, all have one language. And this is the, only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. The extent of their rebellious ways would only be expanded if God did not intervene, as he does. And he brings a sure, simple, but powerful, impactful remedy to force them to spread out and do his will. Verse 7. Again, notice the language. It's reminiscent of what we've read already in Genesis. It's tragically reminiscent. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Do you catch that language? Remember back to the beauty of the creation before sin. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion. Now we read in Genesis 11, verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. They're fixing to destroy themselves and everybody again. And God, in his common grace, gives these languages. It seems tragic at front, and it is. It doesn't throw off God's plan. To compel humankind to spread out and exercise dominion, he confuses their languages. This had to be a painful process. We've got to think of it in their time if we can. It's difficult because we have incredible access to things like Google Translator. You could talk to somebody right next to each other with little delay who speaks a completely different language. None of that exists, and I know you understand this. And they are living in, in a subsistence way. They cannot afford to live alone. They are together. They depend on each other. So if they cannot communicate any longer, they've got to find who they can communicate with and get for survival somewhere else. And they've got to get away from each other. There's only so many resources. And it's been proven by those who study language that if you just go into a language you've never heard before, it can take two years to get to where you can write it down and really communicate it. Maybe speak it a little quicker, but not quick enough to get together and get the kind of enterprise necessary to grow crops and build things and be able to survive. So this divine genius plan of simply giving them different languages forces them to spread out just as God had willed for them to do. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. After they said, we're not going to be dispersed, we can't be dispersed, changes the language and they're dispersed. And left off building the city, the end of that project. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth, all the earth. This is where the current table of the nations originates. It's fascinating if you do genetic studies and studies of civilizations and how they develop. As the groups disperse with their languages and they isolated in various spots, over time, because of the way genetics work, they would actually start to take on 
um, similar physical traits. This is how it happens, the uniqueness of all our physical... The beauty of that comes from the genetics God originally designed in creation, but now isolating these groups, languages and cultures and even physical traits start to develop. And this is where you see the table of the nations come from, even into our own day, understanding a bit of how that all happened. God planned for this initial disbursement, but Babel brought, brought about a swift and abrupt movement in this direction. Whatever, whatever you are striving to build will become a memorial to something or someone. Whatever you are establishing, constructing, erecting, it will tell a story of priorities and value. And all of us are building something or some things, accumulating, establishing, growing. There's a certain tragic feel, by the way, when you read this. This tragic feel that I want to at least give a little bit of indication about God's great plan as it unfolds. Mankind divided against itself in this moment, the sinful result of humanity's uh, exercise of independence against God. But, but make no mistake, this disunity is not God's long-term plan for humanity. The Christ of God, the seed of the woman, the Messiah would eventually come and begin to reverse what happened at Babel. The nations dispersed and unbelieving. He will bring them back together in his ultimate consummation. But even when Christ comes and ascends into heaven, seated at the right end of his Father, he sends the Holy Spirit to begin the reversal of what we see tragically unfold at Babel. In fact, before the time of Jesus, several centuries before, Long after Babel, long before Christ, the prophet Zephaniah looks forward to what God will do. And Zephaniah says, for at that time, and he's talking about when Messiah would come, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. That Messiah would come and he would bring a unity to humanity once again. If Babel marked the division of the nations, the coming of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit marks the beginning of the reversal of Babel and an eventual unification of humanity under King Jesus. Genesis 11, the Lord confused the language on earth and dispersed them over the face of the earth. But listen to the book of Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit is sent. When the day of Pentecost arrived, They were all together in one place, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, the exact opposite of Babel. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Now, the building projects that we should all care about in the here and the now are personal and corporate. Personal meaning you. You are an important building project that your God is doing in you and through you by Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's the first building project we should care about most. We should see all other building projects in our life under that building project, that which God is doing to build you. But there's something else for all of us, the people of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, as you come to Christ, 
you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. There's two main building projects that are most important to all of us. What God's doing in our life to build us into his workmanship and what he's doing in all of our lives to make us a people who give God the glory. So other projects you have going have to be seen through those projects. This life is not about the buildings that you have constructed or that we have made. It's not about the glory of our achievements. The focus of our lives, it should be upon the one who has granted us this life eternal, the one who's building you. Your story is the story of God's building project in you and in us. We should stop thinking strictly in terms of what we will accomplish, what we will establish, what we will accumulate or build, or instead be refreshed in our thinking about what God is doing through us for his glory. God, our God, is the builder. We are monuments to his goodness and mercy. God is the creator. We are testaments to his glory and his grace. This is why Paul says, kind of as a capstone to the Corinthians, Whatever you do, he said a lot of stuff in nine chapters before, but bottom line, people, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Finally, there is a day coming, brothers and sisters, there is a day coming when the total reversal of Babel will be seen. John in Revelation gives us this picture. Hear this through these, this lens of Babel. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When the angels see this reversal of Babel, listen to what they say. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be, be to our God forever and ever. The language of earth will be the language of heaven and it will all be to the glory of Christ. One language is coming again. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are humbled by this passage and your truth about humanity. To the degree that we have been working to establish our name instead of yours, Please forgive us, O Lord, and restore to us a clear view of our purposes under your program, your kingdom. To the degree that we have been striving to build up our bank accounts, accumulate stuff, build up our reputations, please forgive us through Christ and grant to us a vision for the great joy that comes from magnifying your holy name through these endeavors. May all of our endeavors on this earth ultimately be a monument to your glory and to your grace. I pray this for the glory of King Jesus. Amen. Let's together respond by turning in our hymnals a great song of dependence in the face of this passage about independence. Um, We confess our dependence here. This is 674. We'll stand and sing verses 1 through 3 of I Need Thee Every Hour as the elders and the ushers prepare the table. Let's stand.